I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. The text is almost as long as the sermon. If this story had happened in our media culture, it would appear in all the tabloids and would have been the subject of every talk show story and late night TV show. The scandal would have totally overshadowed what was actually happening in the story. Because moral outrage is one of the best ways to avoid self-awareness and inclusivity. And so to even partially understand this story, we have to understand some of the context in the culture. The land of Palestine is about 120 miles long from north to south. That's about the distance from Vernon to Nacusp. And in Jesus' time, that 120 miles was divided into three distinct territories. In the extreme north lay Galilee, in the extreme south lay Judea, and in between was Samaria. Jesus and his disciples had been ministering in Judea and had created some controversy, especially between John's disciples and Jesus' disciples. And now it looked like the Pharisees were going to get involved. And so it seems like Jesus and his disciples make the decision to move to Galilee and continue their ministry there. And the only way, or the shortest route, was through Samaria. But that was not the politically or religiously correct route. Most Orthodox travelers would have taken a route about twice as long by crossing the Jordan in, uh, in uh, Judea, going up the Jordan past Samaria, and then crossing the Jordan again into Judea. Jews in Judea and Galilee abhorred Samaritans, and the feeling was mutual. As one rabbi of the time suggested, the only thing worse than relating to a Samaritan was to eat pork. Jesus, however, chose the direct route, about a three-day walk. And this dispute went back 700 years before the time of Christ, when the Assyrians conquered the Samaritan region and took many of its settlers and resettled them into their own remote territories. And then the Assyrians sent their own people, their own settlers, into Samaria to repopulate the area with their own people, often a common practice of conquering leaders. And over the time, the two races intermingled, and the southern and northern Jewish populations said Samaritans were no longer a pure race, half-breeds, they were called, losing their right to be called Jews. To interact with them was to soil your own racial purity. Again, moral outrage is one of the best ways to avoid self-awareness and inclusivity. Three or four centuries later, the Babylonians conquered the southern area of Judea and also moved many of its citizens into their Babylonian territory. However, these Jewish citizens tenaciously hung on to their Jewish roots and practices. And then during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, these citizens were allowed to return to Judea by the then Persian king, 
who was likely all too happy to get rid of them. And when they returned, they immediately began to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And these Samaritan half-breeds offered to help them build it. However, the purebred Judeans refused their help. To the Judeans, the Samaritans had lost their true heritage and had no right to participate, let alone worship, in the rebuilding of the temple. And so this resulted in the Samaritans building their own temple, which then was destroyed by these same Judean Jews 130 years before this story. And so again, moral outrage is one of the best ways to avoid self-awareness and inclusivity. And these are just a few of the incidents that supported old hatreds and its ally, fake news. And in this context, after a long walk, Jesus stops for a rest at a well, right at a crossroads of two streets, two paths, while the disciples go about a half a mile away to the nearest town to buy food. And then there follows the longest conversation recorded in New Testament, in the New Testament between Jesus and any other person, our passage today longer than any conversation with his disciples, longer than any conversation with his own family, certainly longer than the conversation he'd recently had with the high-powered Pharisee Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, longer than any conversation with any religious political leader, leaders who could have been a powerful supporter of his ministry, possibly. His longest conversation is with the most culturally marginalized person. First of all, she's a Samaritan, mixed race, half-breed, unworthy of wasting time with. In fact, in, to spend time with her is to be tainted. And she was also, of course, a woman. And in Jesus' time, women were not exactly what you might call liberated. Not only could she not worship with men, but these same men in their morning prayers included the phrase, thank you, God, that I am not a woman. Holy men didn't even talk to their wives in public. And there was a group of pious Pharisees called the bruised and the bleeding Pharisees. Why? Because they closed their eyes when they saw a woman on the street and often walked into things like walls and poles, smashing their noses proudly. Talk about objectification. This is right out of Monty Python. The third reason was she was a Samaritan, she was a woman, but that was not all. She was also a fallen woman. Respectable women made their trips to the well in the morning with all the other women when they could greet one another exchange the town gossip, exchange news. But this woman was one of the people they talked about. And the fact that she showed up at noon was a sure sign that she was not welcome at their morning social hour. Social distancing at its worst. And as Jesus soon deduced, she had been married as many times as Elizabeth Taylor and was living in sin at the moment which made it all around less painful 
for her to go to the well alone after the others had gone. Again, moral outrage is also one of the best ways to create barriers. And so their conversation, this longest of all conversations in our scriptures, is a wonderful example of a listener always returning to the framework or life of the speaker, always a movement from ideas and arguments to the personal. And hoping to avoid all contact with anyone, she arrives in the heat of the day with her water pot balanced on her head. Shocked, she sees a strange man sitting beside the well. And she gathers her courage and moves towards the well. And surprisingly, he engages her. And when he looks at her and asks for a drink, she sees the color of his skin, his dark eyes, and immediately realizes he's a Jew. What's he doing here? Is he lost? Can't be a very good Jew if he's walking through Samaria and talking to her. Doesn't he know that if he takes a drink from her, he is literally breaking the law? And she confronts his lack of moral outrage. Why are you a Jewish male asking me, a questionable Samaritan woman, for a drink? Ironically, we never do find out whether Jesus gets his drink. The verbal sparring takes over, and you're never quite sure if they're on the same wavelength as each other. Jesus' metaphor of living water is confusing to her. For her, living water is a, is a creek, flowing water, as opposed to the stagnant water that is in a well. Fresh flowing water. She'd love some of that. And so she teases, you've got no bucket. And this well is about 120 feet deep. How are you going to give me living water? And now Jesus' metaphor gets personal. And so she changes the subject to a religious topic. Are you saying you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? But eventually she softens a little. And when she finally asks for this water, he gets even more personal. Go get your husband. Come back. She doesn't object to this unexpected change of subject. She doesn't say, I thought we were talking about religion. Why are you getting so personal? She stands tall doesn't lie, looks right at him and says, I have no husband. And Jesus jumps even closer. He still wants a drink. She still wants this living water. But suddenly this is getting too close to home. The intimacy and the honesty is too much. And rattled, she again changes the subject back to religion, trying to continue the argument about Jews versus Samaritans. Who is this man with x-ray vision? And she tries to cover up. And the more she covers up, the more Jesus uncovers himself. She is the first one that he totally shares who he is with. I know that Messiah is coming, she says, and he says, I am he. He's never said that to anyone before. And herein is the crescendo of this story. While eliciting who she is, Jesus showers her 
with who he is, and all the cultural barriers fall to the ground. This is mutual disclosure illuminated by the midday sun. All the rules, prejudices, moral outrage, fake news that has hung around for centuries, things that separate them, crash like a house of cards. And the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It still happens this way today. In Jesus' presence, we discover who he is, and so, and in so doing, we discover our own true identity. As one writer has put it, the Messiah is the one who shows you who you are by showing you who he is, who crosses all boundaries, breaks all rules, drops all disguises, speaking to you as someone who has known you all your life, bubbling up in your life like a well that needs no dipper, and so that you go back to face the people you thought you could never face again, speaking to them as boldly as he spoke to you. Come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done and still love me. And they do come, initially because her boldness blows their minds. But then the same process of mutual disclosure and oneness in spirit captures many of them, and he ends up spending two days with them, two days after which they too realize he is the savior of the world. In my first week in seminary, I walked into one of my professor's office to meet her. She was a sister of mercy, a Catholic woman teaching at a Presbyterian school. And the first thing I noticed in her office on the wall was a picture or a saying, which I think sums up exactly what the woman at the well realized, what the people in Samaria realized, and what perhaps we are invited towards. The sign said, the secret is to risk disaster, hope for triumph, and describe the forms of the incarnation. The secret is to risk disaster, hope for triumph, and describe the forms of the incarnation. This is the reality of living water. God is spirit. Barriers create no limit to spirit. And in Christ, living water washes away all barriers between peoples. It trickles into every crack and crevice of our tendency to judge and exclude. And this is what makes Jesus Christ the savior of the world. And we are called to notice and to name this living water wherever we find it. Amen. <laughs>